Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for spending a little of your time to listen to our podcast. My guest for this episode is Martin Lockett, who wrote his memoir, Prison to Purpose Pipeline, while serving a 17 and a half year sentence for a DUI that resulted in the deaths of two people. Having completed his sentence, Martin is fulfilling a commitment he made to give back to the recovery community and help people with substance abuse and mental health disorders. I'm sure you'll find this to be a particularly inspiring episode. But before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. Each and every person in the fight against alcohol addiction has their own reason for recovery. Maybe it's a husband, wife, daughter, son, mom, dad, best friend, colleague, job, hobby, or just yourself. Whatever your reason for recovery, we're all in this together. On Beyond Belief Sobriety, our mission includes building a strong community, staying connected, and working to break the stigma. That's why we've partnered with Soberlink, to expand and strengthen our community even further. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help provide accountability for people in recovery. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones, who can offer support in the event of a slip or relapse. Soberlink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time to help rebuild trust and foster peace of mind. Soberlink is currently building a strong community of people in recovery. Get inspired and inspire others today by joining the community at Soberlink.com BBS. And now, episode 277, Martin Lockett, Prison to Purpose Pipeline. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a total honor to be here. And so my name is Martin Lockett. I am 43 years of age. I have spent nearly half of my life in prison. A fatal DUI crash that claimed the lives of two people uh, led me to a 17 and a half year continuous prison sentence. And through that process, there was a lot of self-discovery, as you can imagine, a lot of introspection, a lot of education, a lot of, frankly, growing up, and then trying to trying to parlay all of that into a purpose uh, for my life and being of service to my community, in particular, those who are struggling with substance abuse and uh, meanwhile, honoring the lives of my victims who were actually in recovery themselves at the time of this this fatal crash and we're doing tremendous work within the community. So it's been quite, quite a journey, but I've been released from prison for a little over a year now and I have lived my best life sober. Very, very proud to say that and continuing to do the work that I set out to do almost 20 years ago. What's incredible is it didn't have to turn out that way. I mean, prison could turn, could turn a good person to a bad person. Getting out of prison and not, not having the support, you know, it's, it's incredible. You know, you think back to 
when I was reading your book when you were growing up and, you know, you, you, you really had a loving family. You had, you had good parents, you know, uh, you did grow up in a rough neighborhood and your parents did their best to shield you from that. But by the time you got in high school, like we all do, and you mentioned this, you're kind of searching for your identity and you try on different identities and you fell into a crowd that led you to make choices that kind of got you to where you, you you were am i understanding that right that is that is 100% the case my parents worked very hard i think as you said to keep us from the the drugs and the crime and the gangs and all these negative influences of our neighborhood but frankly it it wasn't enough once we got into high school because then the peer group becomes you know central and independence becomes you know, pretty important. And so for me, I was terribly shy as a lot of, you know, young people are. And I would virtually do anything to overcome that shyness and to be sociable and to be accepted and to belong, right? We all have this inherent need to to belong, to be a part of something. And so what that meant for me and the kind of the, the group that, you know, uh, I hung around in my school, it meant that uh, everything that my parents had taught me growing up was secondary. And I pretty much did whatever I needed to do to gain that acceptance. So that led to drinking alcohol, skipping school, smoking weed, eventually turned into stealing cars, getting arrested, going to juvenile detention hall, being placed on probation. And through that, as you said, having um, not a great sense of identity. And so what that looked like for me around age, you know, ages 14, 15, is that on one hand, I needed to be accepted by my guys in my neighborhood, right? So this is where I would wear the, the gangster clothes and, you know, talk the talk and carry the handgun and sell the crack cocaine, even though like I was terrified in doing that because that wasn't me, right? I wasn't raised that way. But it gave me the acceptance and the notoriety within that peer group. However, I also my parents were very adamant about uh, my twin brother and, and I maintaining jobs after school. So when we became of age at 16, we were able to work part time after school. So I worked at an ice cream parlor and all of my uh, coworkers were white, predominantly middle class uh, students and, and now working at this place. And so. It, it became really important that I had their acceptance because now I'm looking at society and the world in a larger context and thinking or believing that every white person I see is successful, right? And every black person I see is not because they live in, you know, as far as what I can see in poverty, working manual labor jobs, nothing wrong with manual labor jobs, by the way. I'm just saying that it wasn't kind of that upward mobility you know, example that I saw, or, you know, that, that, that a person is looking for. And so to gain their acceptance, I would totally change my attire. I'm wearing, you know, polo and Tommy Hilfiger and, you know, these kind of preppy, again, this, the symbol of middle class white America and what they wear and how they talk and things like that. So I would totally change my vernacular, change my clothing, everything about me changed because, again, whatever to gain that acceptance, that's what I would do. So I'm navigating between two worlds, which is a huge internal conflict for me because I'm not stable in either one, right? So again, I'm trying on these, these identities and not having, and I love my parents to death. They're no longer here with us, but 
they didn't, they weren't equipped to help me to navigate such an arduous process, if I'm being honest, right? And and maybe they didn't have that growing up. And so again, generational, you know, uh, uh, situations there, but that's what was kind of at the crux of my need to drink and just suppress these, these hard feelings. And, and that was kind of how I coped. Well, you see, I identify with you a hundred, a hundred percent. I mean, I could say the very same thing for me, trying on different personalities. I was an army kid. So I moved from one place to the next, right? So I would become whatever the culture was where I was living at the time. It was, you know, th- that's how I was. And I, and I, I can use that to my advantage and disadvantage. Even to this day, I can still, still do that. But one thing that I found interesting that I wanted to ask you about in your story is during your first time when you went to juvenile detention and you got out, they let you go to a school where you were separated from your, from your friends, from your regular friends, and you got some one-on-one attention and you did really well. Exactly. I never felt, even though I was out running the streets and doing these things that I knew were contrary to what you know, my parents would want and how they raised us. I still felt that I was capable. I felt that I was intelligent, right? You, yes. You were very talented and very smart. Thank you. But I couldn't show that amongst right. my, it was discouraged <laughs> amongst the other group. It really was. It really was. And so, um, again, that whole positive reinforcement and, and, you know, operant conditioning within the, you know, psychological field, um, that was, that was what was paramount. And so, you're right. When I was separated from my peer group and I literally had a desk that, that had these these, um, uh, you know, kind of these side panels and everything. So I was literally like secluded with just me and my work. And the, the teacher was right behind me and she was just so encouraging and nurturing, kind of like a, you know, a, a grandmother figure. And but she really she really, um, you know, encouraged me and spent time with me and I excelled. Like I got almost straight A's. I had never gotten straight A's in high school except for when I was in that environment. And so, but then after that 45 day period was up, then I was, you know, placed back into my regular high school with my same friends and, you know, uh, all bets were off at that point. It's almost like you wish that there were a way that you could help these kids without them having to go to detention and somehow giving them that kind of care. I, you know, I don't know, but it just seems like, I don't even know what the answer is. I, this is another thing I thought about. So I'm like you, I, you were 24 years old. I think when you had your uh, DUI, I was 20, I was 25 when I had my last drink. And I feel like that you want to make You want to send a message out to young people like, like you were that, you know, you can make different choices now. And Reading your book now as an as an older adult and and knowing better, I can say yes, this makes total sense to me. But I wonder, as a nineteen year old, would I have listened? And I asked a friend of mine that. I said, "Do kids listen?" And she said, "Well, some will." What's your experience with that? You're right. And so there was a neighborhood pastor uh, growing up when we were in the church and things like that. We would go to church with our families, uh, with our our parents, and this pastor. Because he would see us hang, you know, when we weren't in church, we were, you know, kind of out doing the wrong things. And he would stop by and talk to, you know, my friends and me and, you know, say, hey, you guys can always come to the church. You know, we're always there for you. If you need somebody to talk to, you know, just really encouraging. And we were thinking like, dude, you have no idea what it's like 
to be, you know, a 15, 16, 17 year old out here, you know, in these streets living this life when really all older people now, believe it or not, they were young at, at, at one point. Right. <laughs> so, but as a youth, you you don't you just see some old guy or some old lady who's trying to, you know, come down on you or, or they just don't understand right but they don't even have to think. be that old they a 40 right. year old might seem very old exactly i'm an old guy <laughs> at 43 i'm like ancient right <laughs> to, to a 16 year old but um but you know i think i think it's just really important to when you're speaking to young people to not place judgment because i do speak to young people who have gotten a minor in possession charge i do it remotely through the uh, trauma nurses talk tough at a hospital, they, they put on these, these panels every month for both DUI uh, uh, offenders and for uh, young kids who have gotten a minor in possession charge. And I'll talk to them about, you know, the, the navigating your identity and, and, and peer pressure and, and how very strong that can be. And I understand that. We all want to belong. We all want to fit in. But you have to ask yourself, at what price are you, you know, paying to gain the acceptance of people who probably aren't headed in the right direction in their own lives. Right. And I'm telling you, I was in prison with countless guys who wished every day they could go back to their high school years and do it all over again, but it's too late for them, unfortunately. But I tell the young people, it's not too late for you, right? You still get to determine your fate. You can still make the next right choice to set yourself on a path of health and happiness and prosperity and, and all these wonderful things, right? But you got to start making the right decisions now because we don't just wake up and find ourselves in prison with a 20-year sentence. It was a continuous pattern of bad decisions that just spiraled out of control and it gets out of control before you know it. And so I just try to talk to them about that, leaning on the the, the adults in their lives who who want the best for them, uh, you know, mental health resources for kids who are going through trauma and things like that, because we know there's a great correlation between substance abuse and trauma. It's just the facts. And so, you know, trying to make it, trying to make those resources available. Uh, I work on the youth line. I talk to young people in a crisis every day and um, you know, it's, it's, there's help out there. And I just try to stress that to them that you can reach out. There's always somebody willing to help. And, uh, you know, you don't have to continue to make these poor choices that can have severe ramifications later in life. I, I was thinking I wanted to go to another part of your book, but you mentioned you mentioned trauma and, and earlier you mentioned just the environment that you were growing up in. Um, I lived in a bad neighborhood, maybe even worse than that, for like seven years and um, when I was an adult. And I remember having to be like really alert to what was going on. So like, if I, if I were to park my car someplace, I, before I got out of my car, I check around, see what's going on. If I'm driving down the street and there's some crazy person in the middle of the street, I turn around, you know what I'm saying? I was, I was always on alert. Right. And if you grew up in an environment like that, that it seems like there's a certain amount of stress that you must have to somehow normalize. You're right. And so trauma is felt either through us personally experiencing some traumatic event, highly stressful, we can't cope, and or it is it is from witnessing it, right? And especially when we are able to identify with the person that the who has experienced the trauma, right? So when you see for instance on the news and 
you know, all these unarmed, you know, black men being killed by police and whatnot, then as a black man who has, hasn't had, frank, thankfully, has, hasn't had that encounter with the police, there is still some trauma because I identify with those men, right? And so just by sheer exposure to it, especially on a continuous or continual basis, that's where the complex trauma and complex PTSD starts to take root, right? When it's prolonged and, and, and so, yes. And so you're right. There is, um, you know, kind of a, a, a mechanism where we process fear or threat or danger that becomes more activated. They've literally looked at the brains of those who have grown up in these communities versus somebody who didn't grow up in that community. And there it's, there is so much more activity in the amygdala and the, you know, hypothalamus. I mean, just these parts of the brain that process whether or not something is a threat or not. And so if, 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 if you're kind of always on active alert or you're stimulated, right, your nervous system is stimulated, then you're going to misperceive things as a threat that aren't a threat, right? You're going to react when something is totally mundane, right? And so, but then you're also going to, but then you're also, it's, and they've also found that it's more difficult for you to be able to assess properly whether something is safe or not, whether someone is safe or not. So, you know, people who grow up in very traumatic uh, households tend to find mates who are unhealthy for them later in life because they, they, they're not able to pick up on these, these cues that, you know, these red flags, right, that this person is displaying because that part of the brain has been hijacked by the trauma. And so it really affects their ability to be able to process this critical information. You know, um, <laughs> I'm laughing, but you um, remind me of something when you, you talked about growing up in a, in a household where there's a certain amount of trauma and unsettlement. That, that was my story. I grew up in a household where I was just yelling and screaming and fighting. And my mother was mentally ill and there's all kinds of craziness going on. But I married someone who's completely normal and well-adjusted and we ha- we have a very happy life and and we and we don't really there's not a lot of conflict and we don't yell and scream at each other which i thought was like a normal thing but the few times that i ever lost my temper and would raise my voice with my wife she shuts it down like that man it's like and i'm like that was just normal <laughs> that was just normal right. stuff <laughs> exactly what you had totally normalized yeah uh she 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 yeah she will say that's unacceptable she'll say that that's unacceptable you do not that boundary mhm very healthy of her I, you know i she just came to it naturally yeah we have a lot <laughs> to learn from our from our better halves i i'm certainly uh in that same boat and and I've learned a lot about emotional intelligence and healthy boundaries and, you know, just how to operate in a healthy relationship. Because when I was consumed by my addiction, I was the most self-absorbed, uh, you know, uh, self-centered, um, insensitive person you could have met. Right. It was all about me. It had to be all about me. But really, that was from a fractured Ego, that was from a place of low self-esteem, right? You, you hear about narcissism and you think that it's the person who is supremely confident, but really it's the opposite, right? And they have to develop this personality to shield the rest of the world from how insecure they really are. And so it's, it's, it's quite fascinating when you really start to learn about, you know, personality disorders and, and just kind of maladaptive behavior. Well, what I was going to ask you about was, okay, there was a period of your life early in your young life where things were things are getting a little more out of hand 
and this is i think this is i think this is where you you did some time for the participating in the organizing of the of a robbery at this place you used to work and then you went you did your time and you went to this boot camp and you were very successful you got out and you were determined to stay sober but but there was a relapse and i wonder if you can talk about that and what you think might have led to that Sure. So you're right. Again, I'm in a very, so it's, it, it almost mirrors what it was like when I had gone to that alternative school. When I'm separated from my peer group and I'm placed in a very structured environment, I thrive. So when I had gone to prison at 19 for mas- being the mastermind of, of this robbery, again, th- at the restaurant that I worked at earlier when I talked about the, the, the friends I was trying to you know emulate and be like, and so I, I got my GED. I, you know, returned to my, my, my Christian roots at that time. I, you know, I was determined to get out, make my family proud, make myself proud, live this, this wonderful life. And so I get out and I'm sticking to everything to a T and I'm going to going to meetings and meeting with my PO once a week. And I get a job within, you know, a month and I, I, I'm doing all these great, wonderful things. And that, in my mind, told me, of course, my addictive brain is now starting to, you know, activate because it's telling me that I'm doing so well that I can manage a drink. Right. And so what happened was a friend of mine who had come over, who he had also graduated the boot camp program, had gotten out early. And my mom had a uh, they had a, a fifth of E&J brandy. My parents, sell, they drank maybe once a year at Christmas time, barely anything at all. But they kept it for that reason. And so he said, hey, man, you know, your parents got any alcohol here? And of course, I'm reluctant. I'm like, yeah, but like, I'm not I don't want to drink. Right. But again, it's that peer pressure. This was my guy. You know, I don't want to tell him no. And so, again, those kind of insecurities started to come back. And I'm feeling like I got to do what he wants, you know, to do. Otherwise, he's going to shun me. Right. He's not going to like me. And so we took that first swig and it was, you know, it was like I, I, I never stopped drinking because once my, you know, it warmed up my chest and, you know, you get that feeling back. And now my my, you know, all my neurons are firing and it was just like old times. And so I started to drink more regularly, started to go out to clubs, meet women. If you're going to a club, you're, young. you're 21 years old at this time. Everybody I knew was going to clubs, having fun, meeting women. You know, so what was I to, you know, was I supposed to sit at home and, you know, I know, I know. I see. I could relate so well. I was there. I was right there with you. And I was at that time getting repeat DUIs. Exactly. And so it didn't take long before I began drinking every day. I had gotten my license by that time. I didn't even know how to drive when I went into prison. So my girlfriend at the time taught me how to drive. I save up $5,000. I buy my first car. Life. It's great. I'm going to school with aspirations of becoming a nurse. And so on the surface, everything looks great, right? I look like I have it together. But inwardly, I'm still suffering and I'm struggling because this whole identity crisis. And and honestly, John, what it was at that point at 22, 23, 24 years old, now I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking at my life and I'm working at a warehouse. Okay. It's not bad. You're, you're in your, your early twenties. That's what, that's what you do. Right. But for me, it wasn't enough because I needed, I needed the status symbol of feeling like I was successful. Right. 
I don't want to be driving this car. I want to drive a Lexus. I don't want to live in an apartment. I want a three-bedroom house, right, at 22 years of age. Who, who has that, right? It's just not realistic. But I so desperately needed to feel important is really what it was, to, to feel validated, to feel like my life mattered. And even though when I was in prison and I had done all this work and had, you know, improved, uh, you know, my life and kind of where I was going, I still hadn't done the critical inner work that needed to be done to feel okay within myself, to feel validated without other people's, you know, acceptance or validation or praise or, or anything like that. And so because I had not worked on that part of myself, the alcoholism found its way back into my life. And before you know it, I'm drinking and driving every day. And it was, it was really only just a matter of time. Yeah. And that was on new year's Eve. Um, I, I can't remember what year, um, 2003, 2003, you know, how many of us could say that could have been me. It could have been me, you know, in your position. Um, wow. But part, something that disturbed me was I, I never, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know how the, how the justice system worked. But it just seemed like there were some really weird things that went on, like um, this judge saw some goodness in you. And because she saw some goodness in you, she had to recuse herself. So some judge comes in who knows nothing about you. And I'm like, that's weird. And <laughs> and it was like these people are making deals behind the scenes for your future it just seemed like it just seemed like things were so kind of out of control and didn't seem to me just I don't know. I so <laughs> right. Um you know and 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 I I totally get that and I have to be careful when I talk about this because at no point do I ever want anyone to misconstrue my critique of the justice system and how things were handled in my case to mean that, that I'm not remorseful for what I did. Exactly. Or that I felt, I, and I get right? that too. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And you absolutely were and are, and you expressed that all throughout from the beginning and all the way through your life. Yes. Okay. So thank you for that. But you're right. So first of all, it starts with, in my opinion, the mandatory minimum sentencing laws in the That's state right. of Oregon. That's right. And they combined them. Right. And so and so what happened is in 1995, during the tough on crime era, when Bill Clinton signed the, the crime bill that funded states to build more prisons and come up with harsher sentencing laws and things like that. That's when ballot measure 11 in the state of Oregon was voted in. It has not been voted out since. And what it did was it took a DUI manslaughter at that point. At that time, it was criminal negligent homicide. And in most states, you, you see it as vehicular manslaughter because they have to make the or they should make the distinction between a DUI crash versus somebody who killed somebody, say, in a fight or something like that, where they didn't intend for the person to die, but they intended to do bodily harm and it resulted in a death. In Oregon, it's all the same as far as the law is concerned. It is considered a violent person to person crime when you drink and drive and kill someone, which required a mandatory minimum of 120 months, otherwise known as 10 years, day for day. You cannot earn a single day off for good time, for good behavior, getting a degree, nothing. It does not matter. 
So I could have gone to prison with 17 and a half years day for day, gotten into a fight every other day, and I still would have gotten out on June 28th of 21. Didn't matter. So you're right. In, in my case, not to not to, to to carry on too long with this, but my attorney and I and the district attorney and the judge would all have these settlement conferences. So I never said that I was going to go to trial. I took full accountability, totally remorseful. I just killed two people, two innocent people. Of course, I'm going to take responsibility. And so the whole negotiation process as to how much time I would do took place during those settlement conferences. Well, the judge is now getting to hear more about me, getting to know me as a person. We're talking about childhood. We're talking about a lot of things. So I ended up pleading guilty about a year later. I, I plead guilty, assuming that this judge was going to preside over my sentencing. So I didn't take an amount of time at that point because we did what's called an open sentence plea bargain. So it's basically you plead guilty to all charges. There is a hearing where I'll have my character witnesses come in, talk about, you know, the good parts about me. They'll have their witnesses come in, talk about how this has affected their lives. And then the judge will make their decision as to how much time I'm going to get. But it's going to be less than if I were to go to trial and get convicted. And then they throw the book at you. Well, after I plead guilty, this judge who had been a part of these settlement conferences for almost a year had decided that because she had gotten to know me as a person that she could not render a uh, an unbiased sentence. So she recused herself. It goes to a random draw is how it works. So you have three chances to get a judge in a random draw. So the first one comes up, your attorney can say, no, we don't like that one. The next one comes up or the DA. And then it, you know, same thing on the second one. The DA can say, no, I don't like that one. Or your attorney can say, no, I don't like that one. And you're stuck with the third one. And so we felt good. My attorney felt good about the judge uh, who was who was presiding over this case. He had seen the he had read the case overnight. And then we go into sentencing and he told my attorney before we even into the courtroom, I'm in the judge's chambers and my attorney comes in there when they escort me in. He said, well, I talked to the judge and the judge asked what we were going to be asking for. And we were asking for about 12 or 13 years. And the judge said, well, I can tell you right now, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go under 16 years, but I won't go over 20 years. So at that point, there's a there's a small window um, as to how much time I'm going to get. And at that Point, there was still a 17 year deal on the table that had been offered before that I had turned down. And so I said, OK, well, 17 years is closer to 16 than it is to 20. I guess I'll take the 17. And then the D.A. had talked to the family members of the victims and said, is 17 years good enough for you guys? They said, well, he turned it down months ago. So we think he should get another six months tacked on to that, you know, for turning it down. So they came back with 17 and a half years. I took the 17 and a half years and uh, proceeded. Okay. But at that time, this is what's so incredible about your story. You could have just given up. You could have just given up on yourself and on your life, you know, but you, when you were in jail, waiting, I think waiting for your trial, the, the, you read an article in the newspaper. Exactly. 
So three days after this crash had happened, I'm in my cell. I'm just minding my own business. And I noticed that someone had slid the Oregonian newspaper, which are our statewide newspaper underneath my door. And I, I thought it was strange. I didn't ask anybody to see a paper, you know, so I pick it up. I begin to thumb through it and I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections and I begin to read. And with each paragraph that I read that morning, for the first time in days, my faceless victims became people, and these people had a story. And their story was that they were recovering addicts who had actually managed to turn their lives around and were now helping others get clean and sober. I had learned that they would watch women's kids so that they could attend AA and NA meetings. They were very active uh, with Volunteers of America. They were actually volunteers with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. So they were beloved in the recovery community. In fact, the very night that this tragedy happened, they were returning home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the, the columnist had talked about, I remember he said the palpable irony of this, that this would happen to these people. And he said something at the end of the article, I'll never forget it, changed my life forever. He said, quote, Perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. And so, as you can imagine, I'm still grappling with the fact that I'm probably going to spend about 20 years in prison and that I'm responsible for two innocent lives no longer being here, not to mention another man who had survived the crash, but, you know, had permanent uh, injuries. And so I couldn't fully process and understand the magnitude of what he had just said but those words resonated so much like I was determined to figure out how I was going to apply those words to my life and so I, I just spent a ton of time and days and weeks and months thinking about that and then it came to me and I determined that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on these people's legacies by doing the work in the recovery community helping those who are struggling with active addiction and getting the word out about the, the dangers, irreversible dangers and consequences of drinking and driving. So I set out on a mission, however much time I was going to do in prison at that point, which I didn't know, but that was going to be my focus. That was your purpose. That was my purpose. That you found, you know, uh, just two episodes ago, we did a, an episode on, on purpose and sobriety and the importance of having purpose in one's life for sobriety. Obviously, it's everything for you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. And so, again, going back to not understanding my identity and kind of my role in this world and this purpose gave me a sense of identity because now I know who I am, how I'm supposed to operate and what kind of my larger calling to, in life is. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, we all are familiar with the pyramid that Abraham Maslow created, the hierarchy of human needs. At the bottom is the most physical basic needs. At the top is what he calls self-actualization. And at the time that he, 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 he had coined it, it was about reaching your fullest potential. He had actually determined in his study of a thousand people that only about 2% of people actually go on to reach their highest potential in whatever that may be. If it be sports or writing or whatever it is that you do to fully actualize that potential, because he said most people just kind of settle into, you know, 
the routine of life and working a job and paying bills and taking care of the kids. And they kind of forget about whatever it is they're passionate about. Right. But what he found later before he died, and this was this was never as widely kind of, you know, uh, publicized. He determined that the only way to truly, fully self-actualize is when you give yourself to a purpose greater than yourself, that you have to be of service to other people to fully reach your greatest potential. And I'm telling you, like I had it backwards my whole life. Instead of me trying to get everybody to pay attention to me and, you know, get all the money I can get and get all the, you know, the accolades and the notoriety, it's really about giving of myself that has in turn validated me. That has in turn given me fulfillment, right? So I, I just had it backwards. And so in this purpose of, you know, sobriety and recovery and me being able to, you know, when I was in prison and I'm working on my degrees and then I had the opportunity to, uh, so I would, at first I was a GED tutor and I would help guys with their GEDs. And so that was really rewarding. These are guys who had, you know, dropped out of school, hadn't had much success in their lives, didn't come with a lot of confidence. And you just kind of nurture them along the way. You give them a little bit of encouragement, you know, and, and they start to build that confidence and they pass that first test. And now they have that momentum and they pass another test and you're right there with them. And then they get to the end goal and you get to celebrate with them. And now they're seeing you know, their lives in a totally different perspective, because now they're like, I can actually set goals and attain them. Right. I can actually do this. It is it, it was profoundly rewarding. And so I was able to do that. Talk to guys about life, about choices, about their goals and dreams and aspirations, their fears. And as you can imagine, in prison, there's not a lot of safe spaces to be vulnerable. But guys saw how I conducted myself. As you read about in the book, there were young guys who would seek me out on the yard and talk to me about really heavy things that they didn't trust with anybody else. Right. And so that was that was really reinforcing to me that counseling is definitely where I need to be. So I had the, the, the privilege and opportunity to work with guys through the, the mentorship program in the drug and alcohol program that I was that I was in for several years. And helping guys process, you know, trauma, childhood trauma, sexual abuse, you name it. And but they trusted me with that. And so that was, you know, that was what filled me up. So being in this whole recovery sobriety community now and I still, you know, uh, do the AA and I, and I you know, I, I, I work as a drug and alcohol counselor and on the crisis intervention line and connecting people with mental health resources. And I also share a part of my story with them, you know, because we're all connected uh, if we suffer from this disease or we have a mental health uh, disorder or affliction, then, you know, we all, we all kind of are in this together. Therefore we all need to try to support one another when and where we can. And so, and again, that reinforces my recovery and, and why I'm doing this. So you had, what what I think is so helpful for me in my life, even to this day, is having goals. And you had goals. And then you also met Renee through a program. Um, and she helped inspire you and encourage you. And I wonder if you could talk about that. She did. So the, the, the program, it was actually a pen pal website for prisoners. And so I put myself on this, this pen pal website just to be able to have 
outside contact, right? I mean, you're taken away from the world. You want to still feel like you're important in some way. And so she she saw this documentary on the importance of a letter for a prisoner and just how it can just totally brighten their day and just, you know, mean the world to them. So she said, well, I'd like to brighten somebody's day. Just a really good, good hearted person is what she is. So she writes me this letter, nothing romantic, nothing crazy. Just, hey, I'm thinking about you. I hope everything's okay. I'd love to hear from you. So we start this pen pal correspondence. Everything is great. And within about six months or so, we strike up a relationship, um, start to talk on the phone. She then started to come out to visit me. She lives in Pennsylvania. She lived, lives in Pennsylvania. I was in Oregon at the time. So she's literally getting on a plane, flying 2,500 miles to stay in the hotel and come to visit me five consecutive days because we could have visits uh, three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon. So she would come for both sessions, five days, and then she would get back on a plane and go home. And then six months later, turn around and do it all over again. So that was, and she met me when I still had like over 16 years left, 16 years left. And so, and so what happened was she started to ask me, well, how do, how, how do you plan on spending your time? You know, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to become a substance abuse counselor. And so I think I'm going to need a degree for that. But like, I don't know how to do that. There's no funding available in, in prison, right? That went away in the nineties during the tough on crime era. So she said, well, and she's not one of those people who she's going to say, oh, well, that sounds really good. And I wish you the best of luck. So we hang up the phone. She goes to the Internet. She spends literally four hours researching prison education, how to get an education in prison. We found three or four universities at the time who were offering distance education via, uh, you know, U.S. Postal Service, because we don't we don't have Internet access in prison in Oregon prisons. So we landed on Indiana University. Classes were super expensive. She said, well, I'll just, you know, have 50 bucks taken out of my check every paycheck. Once we get enough to order a course, we'll do that. So I was just over the moon grateful, you know, for her to support me in this way. We had a degree plan and everything was great. And so I, I did that. I would take a class like every three months from Indiana University. At the time, however, I was also able to take one community college course that was offered at the prison for 25 bucks per class. They would have an instructor come down and teach the class at the prison. And that was through a that was the, through a, a program that was created by retired teachers who used to work at the prison in the GED program. And so um, I continued with that kind of very slow pace, one class here, one class there. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, eventually I'm going to take enough of these and they're going to give me a degree, right? I didn't know about, you know, certain categories and electives and required courses. I didn't know about that. But Renee was able to um, figure all that out for me. We put together a plan. When I lost my dad, uh, about three years later, I was able to get his pension and his life insurance money. And I was able to actually start to take classes at a much more rapid pace. So I'm now I'm doing two or three classes from Indiana University, Louisiana State University. I parlayed all of that into an associate's degree from Indiana University in 2010. I went on to get a bachelor's in sociology in 2013 from Colorado State. And then I finally got a master's in psychology 
2016. Incredible. 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 Wow. Thank you. That's, um, wow. I, you know, so now you're, you're in, you're in prison, you're doing that. And then you write this book while you're in prison. Can you talk about this writing this book? Yeah. So Renee had encouraged me a few times that I should write my life story. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know how to write a life. I don't know how to write a book, you know? And so she said, well, I'll just say, I'll, I'll research and I'll find a book on how to write a book. You can just, you can, you can start there. So I did that and I get this incredible book written in the eighties about, you know, how to write an outline and, these are the prompts you want to use and all the kind of mechanics of writing an autobiography. And so I do that and I sit in my cell and I take pen to paper and I literally just start writing from the earliest childhood memory and all the way up until, you know, years later. And I'm telling you, you would be surprised how much comes back into your conscious mind when you start to write in vivid detail about certain important events in your life. It was incredible. I ended up with over 100,000 words over seven and a half months. I would literally write maybe an hour, hour and a half a day. I didn't spend a ton of time doing it. I would do it during count time when we're stuck on our bunks anyway for an hour while they would you know, count us and make sure nobody's escaped or anything like that. And I would just write. And it was, but I'll tell you, it was, it was, it was, you know, gratifying to know that I could actually write an entire manuscript, but it was so much cathartic healing and processing through that process. But I'm writing about, you know, having lost my son before his first birthday. And I thought that that, I thought I had totally processed all of that grief. Boy, was I wrong. So all these emotions are coming up and some things I realized had been resolved and other things, not so much. And so it kind of led me on this this whole new process of really facing head on now that substances are no longer part of my life, negative influences are no longer you know perm, you know circulating all around me, and I'm able to really sit with this heavy stuff, and I'm able to talk to Renee about it, and I'm able to talk to my family about it, and and just really kind of get the closure that I needed in a lot of ways. And so it was twofold, very very rewarding to write that book. And I got a lot of really good responses. You know, you, you think that something sounds good to, to you, right? Um, I hired a professional editor. I did all of that and I feel good about it. But the, the, the real, the real proof would be in people who didn't know me, you know, or didn't know me uh, prior to prison, you know, reading it and giving me their honest feedback. And it was, it was really, really, um, you I know, loved uh, it. It was a thank great, you. I, you know, it's so good. I mean, I, I mean, for a self is a self-published book, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. normally they're not this, they're not this good, but this is so good. I mean, I really felt like I got to know you when I was reading this and, and knowing how you grew up, how you felt, the people that you ran with, the circumstances, how you felt about it. I could relate so well because I'm, you know, I think we all can, because we're all kids and we're all doing these things, you know? Uh, and when, when we get in trouble with alcohol and the problem, the crazy problems. So it was just so well done. I just, it was a good experience reading this book. It was just so, so good. Um, so yeah, I would recommend it to, to anyone. If you just like, if you like to read and, and if you like memoirs and if you're in recovery, this is a good one. 
Um, Thank you. Martin, can you talk about what you're doing now? Yes. So I work at Lines for Life, and Lines for Life is the national suicide prevention hotline that oh. everybody calls. And and just a quick plug on that, literally starting tomorrow, 988 is going to be the number. If you're in a mental health or behavioral crisis and you need to talk to somebody immediately, the same way we have 911 for an emergency, we now nationwide will have 988. If you need to talk to someone, you're in a behavioral crisis, you are struggling with Maybe you're in recovery and you feel like you want to relapse and you need to talk to someone about that. 988 is the number you can call starting tomorrow. Uh, you will talk to somebody like me or one of my wonderful colleagues. Um, and so I do that. I work on the drug and alcohol line. I get to talk to people about their struggles in recovery and connect them with mental health resources, drug and alcohol resources in person, online, free, insurance based. You name it, the resources are there. That can also be reached through 988 starting tomorrow. So I do that. That's my nine to five, so to speak. I also am very active within the uh, DUI victim impact panels throughout the state of Oregon. I've spoken in person. I speak remotely every month uh, at DUI victim impact panels uh, through a uh, the hospital in Portland, Oregon. And then I also speak to minors who have gotten a minor in possession charge. I have reached out to the counties here in Pennsylvania because I'm trying to really establish the speaking presence here. I've gotten some good feedback from the DA's offices that facilitate these driver safety classes and things like that. So I'm looking to get set up with them. I've reached out to superintendents of the schools. So when this upcoming school year starts, I'll be able to get into some schools and speak as well as um, some state police departments have shown some interest in bringing me in to speak at their trainings with new cadets. And when they have the DUI uh, portion of the training, uh, they, they, they may consider bringing me in. So always looking to do that. I actually host, uh, co-host rather, a podcast of oh, my you own. Do. I do. It's, I did not called, know that. I know. I don't, I don't plug it a whole lot, honestly. Um, I, I'm still getting used to you know this promotion thing because for for all the years in prison I'm just keeping my head down and doing the work that needs to be done right now I'm in the real world this is a part of this is a part of life and and kind of having a public platform so rock the bottom podcast uh yeah so actually a friend of 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 mine in Canada she co-host we co-hosted together but she was a pen pal at one point about five years ago when she reached out to me after reading a blog that I had written about grief after I had lost my sister to suicide. And I had written this blog about grief and she was going through a very difficult time. And she came across this article and said, oh, my goodness, I need to reach out to the author. Lo and behold, the author is in prison. So then she became even more fascinated. So we struck up a really really great friendship and so we we co-host uh, that podcast together okay so it's, i'm gonna, it's gonna have, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna listen to that yeah Appreciate i love it. podcasting podcasting about recovery has been tremendously helpful for me meeting people like you who i would not have met otherwise you know expanding my my thinking and my experiences in the world and hopefully bringing that to other people too so it's a what's a great experience so i hope you enjoy that oh absolutely i fully agree and you know just going back to you saying that you related to so so many parts of the book 
And back when I wrote the book, I was thinking, well, who's my target audience? I'm thinking, well, people who grew up in the inner city like me, that looks like me, because I'm thinking there's no way that people who didn't grow up in these particular circumstances could relate. Right. But it, again, so many people of every background, socioeconomic status. Because you wrote about your feelings. Exactly. And at the end of the day, we are all a part of this. And human- you can see the good person in you as I as I when you read this book, you can see the good kid underneath this. Thank you. Thank you. No, it, 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 it's, it's been it's been it's been a joy. Uh, being on this journey and meeting so many incredible people and making so many connections and especially now being a part of this online sober community and, and people really promoting this young people, old people, rich people, poor people. I mean, you name it. And we all, you know, we all are bound by this common thread of addiction and recovery. And so, you know, we, we, we have an obligation to, in the same way that I have an obligation to society to do everything I can to prevent drinking and driving and, and the fatalities and things like that. Once we have crossed over into this life of sobriety and recovery, we have a duty and an obligation to reach back and lend a hand to the person that's still struggling. We just do. And so I feel that immensely through the online platforms and certainly these podcasts. Thank you so much for having these podcasts and allowing for people like me to be on and share our story. Well, thank you. I have enjoyed this immensely. It was really nice to meet you, to read this book, to get to know you. I look forward to following you more often, and I hope we talk again sometime. Thank you so much, John. It was truly my pleasure. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyond belief sobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.